<laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right. Looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode. I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JSC exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business, you want me to talk about it, I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time, you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Among the names, the our guy, Grant Hill, <laughs> deservedly so, on the list. And we'll talk about some of the other names, but first of all, man, congratulations. One step away, deserve to be here. Can you describe kind of what the moment was like when you found out that you had made this list? Yeah, I, I was certainly overwhelmed. And, you know, you, you start off as a fan. And obviously I was a fan of this man right here, Isaiah Thomas. Uh, he and that generation inspired me. But everybody on that list, uh, with all due respect to the, the Wayland Baptist University, I, I've been a fan of I've been a contemporary of some. I've grown up watching some. And so to be in that category with people I respect and admire, regardless of what happens moving forward, is uh, is just a great thrill, and, and I don't really know what to say. I'm just – so I don't want to jinx it, but I do want to say that I'm very grateful and very humbled and honored to be in that, uh, with that on that list with those great players and great people. Well, you, you, you definitely deserve to be on that list. And, you know, when you look at that list, Grant, and this is, this is real talk, right – there isn't anyone on that list that has that has ever been crowned carrier of the league. And I, I never wore that crown. I mean, there's only few people who wear that crown for a certain period of years. You're talking about the Magics, the Jordans, the Kareems. But when you came in, you know, you had that crown at a very early young age, right? And you were the face of the league. And I've, I've never been. I was one of the faces of the league. But you were that guy, and you were carrying the league. And that, that's a special torch that not many people get to have. And you had it for several years, and when you had it, you carried it well, brother. So you definitely deserve to be on that list because there's nobody that's on that list that has ever been the carrier of the league, not even for a week, a month, but you did it for a couple of years. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, 
My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 72nd episode of The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. What's happening, everybody? As we close out the month of March, we head into the month of April. It is I, once again, J. Scott Smith. I want to thank you once again for all your support, all your love, all of your everything on this show. I want to get right into it. Thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash JSC Radio. You can make sure to follow that and help the show continue to grow. Everybody who wants to follow me, you can follow me on the Twitter machine. I am at J. Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T. H. I am also that same name on Instagram. You can get at me on the Twitter or on Instagram. By the way, I am verified on Twitter. I am also on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith. There's a blue check mark there because I am the original J. Scott Smith. Yes, indeed. And I want to thank all of you who have supported this show on all the different podcast platforms. That would be Apple Podcasts. That would be SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash JSC Radio. That would be Stitcher Radio, the first podcast provider to carry this damn show. Big up to everyone who listens on Google Play. Those of you checking in on the TuneIn app. Big ups to those of you who listen on Audio Boom. And yes, 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 this occurred not long after last week's show. Spotify came on board just before the 70th episode, and you can now listen to JSC Radio on the iHeartRadio app. iHeartRadio, damn it. Yes, we're that big time. 72 episodes in, and now we're on just about every major podcast provider on the damn planet. So you have no excuse. Search JSC Radio, lock it down, and listen. And we are right here at your ass. And also, be sure to hit me up on the mothership, jscottsmith.com. God damn it, how's it going? I'm hype. I'm fired up. Baseball season's starting. The Tigers are going to be absolute basura, but that doesn't matter. Baseball season has started, and and that's not even something I'm going to go into in this particular episode, but I just wanted to say it as Tigers opening day occurred today because, well, it was supposed to happen yesterday, but the damn thing got rained out in Detroit. Everybody else got rolling. The Tigers and Pittsburgh Pirates were just kind of hanging out in the Motor City. Tigers got absolutely jobbed, but hey, it's baseball season again, which means we're a skosh closer to summer. It's also Easter weekend. And as you heard there in the intro, we're going to have some new Hall of Famers. Maurice Cheeks, Steve Nash, and Grant Hill. Big up to Maurice. And then Jason Kidd. Can't forget Jason Kidd. Came in the same time as Grant Hill. Certainly can't forget Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd, Maurice Cheeks, Steve Nash, Grant Hill. They're your new Basketball Hall of Famers. Now, normally I don't go into a whole thing about the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. For some odd reason, the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame is maybe that last Hall of Fame that you sit there and when you hear a guy gets inducted, you say to yourself, wait, that dude wasn't already in the Hall of Fame? That's what the Basketball Hall of Fame kind of is. More so than the Baseball Hall of Fame, more so than the Pro Football Hall of Fame. When you hear of a dude going into the Basketball Hall of Fame, lately it's one of those things that, wait, that guy wasn't in there? That's what I kind of thought about Maurice Cheeks. I didn't realize Maurice Cheeks wasn't in the Hall of Fame. Now he is. Everyone figured Jason Kidd was in. 
Everyone figured Steve Nash was in. I figured Nash might have to wait a little longer, but <laughs> guess I'm wrong. For some odd reason, Chris Weber and Rudy Tomjanovich are still not in. And more so, I think the Weber thing has a lot to do with maybe the Ed Martin situation and the whole thing at Michigan. Because you remember, the Basketball Hall of Fame also takes your college career into account. So it's adding in your, your college career. And since Weber's college career was highly questionable, at least for the time, as we talked about a few weeks ago, I was 100% behind Weber and others getting paid. Now, mind you, what he did ended up, you know, torpedoing an entire generation of basketball at the University of Michigan. But that was the thing I'd always figured was being held against Weber. Grant Hill, on the other hand, is a different conversation altogether. I will say this. There couldn't be too many better people out there than Grant Hill. From top to bottom, there couldn't be too many better guys and to understand, this is for the people, these are for the, the youngsters, the, the Generation Z, not quite the millennials, because millennials technically are my age, too. I'm, on the, I'm an old millennial as opposed to some of you youngsters who are just getting out of college, those millennials. But the Generation Z that didn't see Grant Hill the Piston, the Generation Z You youngsters who are 19, 20, 21, 22 years old with multicolored rainbow dreads and tight skinny jeans and and your septums pierced, who think that NBA basketball started when LeBron came into the league. You got to understand here that you didn't see Grant Hill, the Detroit Piston. You saw Grant Hill, the semi-washed member of the Orlando Magic. You saw journeyman old man Grant Hill in Phoenix. You saw journeyman old man Grant Hill out there for the Clippers. You didn't see young G. Hill. You didn't see Duke Grant Hill. The most you saw of Duke Grant Hill was him triggering the inbound pass to Christian Leitner on that grainy film to get Duke to the Final Four. You didn't see Duke Grant Hill. You didn't see Detroit Piston G. Hill. You didn't see that guy. Grant Hill, and Isaiah made reference to that in the intro. That was Isaiah Thomas. The Essentially, Grant was the heir apparent to Zeke in a Piston uniform, in Piston red, white, and blue, before they inexplicably turned those uniforms teal. Now, I'll talk about that in the midst of all this. But Grant Hill came into the league in the 1994 NBA draft, and he was a bona fide stud. He was a stud. He was seen as the face of the league. Because you got to remember, by the time Grant Hill is drafted into the NBA, Michael Jordan is on his way out. He's, He's gonzo. He's done. He retires. He goes play baseball for a couple years. So for two years... The league was left to the likes of Shaquille O'Neal, Penny Hardaway, Chris Webber, who was by this point with the Golden State Warriors, and Grant Hill. And yes, you can say to a certain extent, Hakeem Olajuwon and maybe Patrick Ewing. But for the most part, this league was left to guys like Shaq and Penny and Grant Hill. And Grant Hill, I'm old enough to remember this. And yes, I'm coming at you revisionist historians who were all in my mentions when I pointed out something about Grant Hill that I'll get to in a second. 
When Grant came into the league, he was essentially referred to as the heir apparent. Not to Isaiah in Detroit. He was known as the heir apparent to Jordan in the league. We all know that that's a mantle that didn't really firmly get picked up until 2003 by LeBron James. Even I'm able to admit that. And even then, there was the argument about Kobe Bryant. But when Grant Hill hit the NBA, he was a hybrid. All this shit you see LeBron doing, racking up 30-point games with 10 boards and 12 assists, Grant Hill was doing that in Detroit. And he was doing it on teams that had maybe two or three other competent players. In Joe Dumars, a young Allen Houston, and then you might have added in, say, Lindsey Hunter. Or for a hot second, Sean Elliott. But other than that, you were getting the likes of Lance Blanks. You were getting guys like Don Reed and Jerome Williams and later down the line, Judd Bushler and John Crotty and Mark Macon and Terry Mills and Grant Long and Bison Dele, Brian Williams, for those of you who may not quite remember that. It was not a good time for the Detroit Pistons at that point. But Grant Hill was a monster. Grant was out here doing things that you had not seen in the NBA. And for two years, he was the top vote getter in the All-Star game, getting more All-Star game votes than Shaq and Penny. This guy was out here putting up triple doubles at an alarming rate in Detroit. And doing it again, I must stress, on a team where he did not have a whole lot of help. You know all this talk all the time that LeBron, for years, LeBron didn't have help, LeBron didn't have help. LeBron was the incredible Hulk. He didn't need help. Grant needed help, and the Pistons were still out there pulling off winning seasons. You remember, he came into the league, and the Pistons were coming off a 60-loss season, one of their worst seasons in franchise history. He came into the league and was seen as the next guy, the savior. He was the savior of the Pistons. That's for damn sure. I'll give him that right there. He was the savior of the Pistons. But overall, he was not the quote-unquote savior of the league per se. He was getting there, but he wasn't the savior of the league per se. And then it didn't help that Michael Jordan would just come back a year and a half into Grant's career, and pretty much that's the end of that story. We all know what happened. And see, that's part of the thing. Grant Hill was as much a victim of circumstance than anything else in his career. He was a victim of poor timing. He was a victim of injuries. He was a victim of circumstance because that guy was awesome. Awesome. He's an awesome player. And even more so, he's a better person than you probably realize. And I'm going to go back here just for a second and look at some of the 1990s records the Pistons had. Now, starting with the 1993-94 season, the one prior to Grand Hill, the Pistons went 20-62. and 20-62. and 62. That's what precipitated them getting Grand Hill. The next year, they improved by eight games to 28-54. and Now, let me look. Let's look at the 1994-1995 Detroit Pistons. They still weren't any good. This was the team that Grand Hill had around him his first year. And mind you, I don't remember some of these guys. These are the players he had. He had the likes of Raphael Addison. Raphael Addison. I almost called him Adelson. Raphael Addison, Walter Bond, Bill Curley, Johnny Dawkins, 
former player at Duke. Joe Dumars. All right, yeah, Dumars. Grant Hill. All right, Allen Houston. Allen Houston's there is good. Lindsey Hunter. All right, Lindsey ended up eventually being on the championship team 10 years later. Then you got Nigel Knight. I remember that name. Nigel Knight, Eric Lechner, the aforementioned Mark Macon, Oliver Miller. I remember when Oliver Miller was traded for. That was considered a big get from the Phoenix Suns. And yes, Oliver Miller was a big get, but for all the wrong reasons. He was 6'9", 280, and he was really closer to 320. Terry Mills, Ivano Newbill, Mike Poplowski, former Spartan, he was, a, he, was a, he was a former Spartan, and Mark West, who actually would be around when the Pistons started to kind of get it together the following year. The next year, they went from 28 and 54 to 46 wins, 46 and 36. It was their last season in red, white, and blue until 2002, by the way. The 1996 Piston team, they made the playoffs at 46 and 36. It, it was at such, te- such players as Steve Bardo, this was your first year of Michael Curry as a Piston. Then you got Joe D, Grant, Allen, Houston, Lindsey Hunter. That was kind of your core. Terry Mills was there. Theo Ratliff is on this team. Don Reed, remember him? Lou Rowe, Otis Thorpe. That was actually a very big pickup at that point. Otis Thorpe, Mark West. They actually had a decent team. They were 10 games over 500. They were not a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, 46 and 36 right now, that's better than any Piston team has had since 2000, 2008. That's really good. So it's the following year. And this is the year that really jumps out to me the most in Grand Hill's tenure. Because this was by far Grand Hill's best year. This is the 1996-1997 Detroit Pistons who finished an astonishing 54-28. and 28. You want to know how competitive the Eastern Conference was in 1997? And you got to understand this is the East that's basically being lorded over by the Chicago Bulls. Let me explain to you what the Eastern Conference looked like in 1997. The Chicago Bulls won 69 games, won the division by 13 games over Atlanta. The number two seed was the Miami Heat, who had a a rather surprising 61 wins. The Knicks were third with 57 wins. The New York Knicks won 57 games. It sounds outlandish to you youngsters to say that. But during the 1990s, the New York Knicks were scary good. The number four seed was Atlanta at 56 and 26. The number five seed in the East were the 54 and 28 Detroit Pistons. Picture that again. The 54-win Detroit Pistons, they had 54 wins. 54 wins would get you awfully close, awfully close to the top seed in the East right now. You'd be really, really close at 54 wins. Pistons won 54 games. They were the fifth seed in the East. They didn't even get home court. That's how good the East was. To look at those Pistons at 54 and 28, and yeah, you got Grand Hill, and you want to go through all these different things. I just want to simply look at the statistics because overall, when you look at a player like Grand Hill, and you have to understand why he had a Hall of Fame career despite being essentially cut brutally short, and I'll explain that too. Despite it being cut brutally short, 1997, he played 80 games. He averaged 21 points a game. It was his second highest scoring season of his career. He averaged 20, just a little about 21 and a half points a game. He didn't, he was never a three-point shooter. You don't have to worry about that. He was never a three-point shooter. The guy shot 45% from the field, though. 45% from the field. It, it was it was remarkable. He averaged 21.4. He averaged seven rebounds a game. 
averaged six assists. So on a given night, he's given you 21, seven, and seven, or 21, eight, and seven. For a team that won 54 games, and I will say this again, they won 54 games. Let me go back one and show you who the hell was on this team in 1997. Now, Stacey Ogman was on the team, but he didn't really play. He had Randolph Childress, Michael Curry, Laterial Green. Rick Mahorn was back for this team. Aaron McKee, a young Aaron McKee played on this team. Theo Ratliff, Don Reed. Kenny Smith had a cup of coffee on this team. Jerome Williams was on this team. Jerome Williams was a rookie on this team at this point. But that was it. That team won 54 games. Look at that roster and tell me other than Joe Dumars and Lindsey Hunter, because by now, Allen Houston has bounced to New York. Where are you finding 54 wins on that team? Grant Hill was a monster, but he was a victim of timing. He comes into that league thinking and being told that he's essentially the heir apparent. Jordan's gone. You're going to be the star, the superstar of this franchise that is not that far removed from winning a pair of NBA titles at the end of the 1980s. Remember, by the time he got there, it had only been four years since the Pistons had won a championship. They were not that far removed from the bad boys, even at this stretch. And he is the, to date, the last superstar that the Pistons drafted. Think about all the guys the Pistons have drafted since 1994. They have not drafted a bona fide stud superstar like Grant Hill. Not since. Haven't come close. And yes, I know about 2003. I did a show on that a year and a half ago. So go back into the archives and find out why I, I talk about that 2003 draft and why they shouldn't have taken who you think they should have taken. Grant Hill, the problem was he came in at a time where he thought he was going to be the heir apparent of the league. Jordan's gone and then he's back. And the Bulls immediately resume their hurricane-like run through the NBA in the 90s. You have Shaq. You later have Kobe. You have Allen Iverson come in at this point. So all these young stud players are hitting the NBA. And they got an edge to them. And yes, I'm going to point this out. Because again, I get on a lot of you revisionists who want to act like the city loved Grand Hill. I mentioned something a couple of seconds ago. The Pistons weren't that far removed from the bad boys when Grant got there in 1994. A lot of the old heads... And a lot of them who have miraculously birthed kids and in some cases grandkids today who like to talk trash to guys like Kevin Durant about loyalty. A lot of that same mentality was floating around the Pistons at the time because whether you like it or not, you cannot dispute facts. Grant Hill was not the most well-liked guy amongst a lot of the old school diehard basketball heads. And it's not because of Grant's ability. They recognized how great of a player he was. They just didn't think he was tough. And that was an undercurrent that floated through Detroit. It was, a, it was an inaccurate one, by the way. But it was an undercurrent that floated through Detroit. That they thought Grant wasn't tough enough. That he wasn't man enough. And he wasn't hard enough to lead the Pistons back to the promised land. When truth be told, I've just laid out to you who he played with. The fact that he got 54 wins out of a team that had Laterial Green and old Rick Mahorn, Don Reed, Theo Ratliff, a rookie Jerome Williams, and Randolph Childress, that team won 54 games. If you gave the man something more than just Joe Dumars and Lindsey Hunter to work with, just imagine what the hell he could have done. He had some bad luck. 
He had some bad timing coming into the league. And yes, he wasn't the most well-liked guy. He was not the most liked guy, despite the fact he was a bona fide stud. And he dropped into the Pistons about maybe 10 years too soon. Oddly enough, it's because of Grant Hill's defection to Orlando after the 2000 season, or after the 99 season. It was after that defection, it eventually set the table for the Pistons to end up winning that championship in 2004 and going on that run through the first decade of the century. Grant was an amazing player, but at the time he left, a lot of people were saying good riddance. They didn't want him. They thought he was soft. They thought he was soft because he went to Duke. They thought he was soft because he came up in a rich family. You remember his dad, Calvin Hill, played in the NFL. His mother had, had multiple degrees. I know you don't want to admit it now, Detroit, but I lived through that. I was around for that. I'm old enough to remember that. I was not a little kid, dude. I was a teenager and a college student hearing cats talk about Grant was too soft. He wasn't a real piston. He was too soft for Detroit. That Grant Hill played the piano. I remember that. You're, you're going you're gonna to play something with Paul in the band? Yes. What yes. are you going to play? Uh, well, I'm going to play a song, Tender Love. You know, a dream of mine was always playing the NBA, but the bigger dream was to play with the late show oh, band. God Paul bless Schaefer. you. And so you're going to play, play the uh, piano? Play the piano. All right, Grant. All right. Good to meet you. you. Grant Hill, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, there he comes. forget Grant Hill was rather cultured which was something else that I don't think people really got Grant Hill played the piano at that point in the hard edge mid to late 1990s NBA where dudes are starting to get tatted up and get cornrows and cats are in rap videos Grant Hill playing the piano don't work so it doesn't matter if Grant Hill's out at the forum against Shaq and young Kobe hitting buzzer beaters to send him to OT and eventually winning in double OT. But he's the guy they want to have it. They don't get it to him. They get it to Hill. Hill fires it. O'Connor with goes. It goes! A bank shot yet. It doesn't matter that this cat is out here going 32, 15, and 14 against one of the best teams in the league. It doesn't matter that he's out here basically holding a teal-clad bunch of misfits together with, with shoestring and bubblegum and getting them to 50-plus wins in an era where it was hard to win games in the NBA. Nope. He was too soft for you. Good riddance. Get him out. The Pistons got lucky because when they let him go, the Magic basically just dropped a bunch of spare parts on this team. Some journeyman named Ben Wallace and some seldom-used point guard named Chucky Atkins. And oddly, that set the table for Detroit starting to get their shit together. Grant Hill was handed a bad egg because he got hurt late in the 99 season and with echoes of he's soft bouncing around in his head. And the Pistons not exactly being in a big rush to let this healthy Grant Hill just jump ship down to Orlando. He goes out there in that playoff series against Miami, including where he had that ridiculous facial on, on Alonzo Mourning in that first round series. He goes out there and basically plays till his leg damn near falls off. 
And by the time he gets to Orlando, he's damaged goods. And his career basically collapses and falls apart. But if you look at what Grant Hill did just strictly as a Detroit Piston, plus what he did the later half of his career once he got out of Orlando and got his and got the injuries behind him, and especially what he did at Duke, it's not a question he's a Hall of Famer. It's not. He's a Hall of Fame individual. He deserved a better hand when he was in Detroit. He deserved a better hand in the NBA. And the reason that, in retrospect, people in Detroit try to speak highly of Grand Hill and act like they loved him and everything else is because the Pistons ended up turning his exit into a net gain and won themselves a championship. Hell, they were in the conference finals three years after he left. So it's like, of course, they're going to act like, oh, we loved him. We always loved him. We never wanted to leave. We always respected Grant. Shut up. No, you didn't. You either didn't or you're too young to remember. I remember. Grant Hill used to get a lot of shit from people in Detroit. He got the same amount of shit Joey Harrington used to get, but the difference is Joey Harrington was actually trash. People refused to like Grant Hill because he played the piano, because he married Tamia. Yeah, he went to Duke. And of course, nobody likes Duke. You want to know what the ultimate compliment I have for Grant Hill is? He's the only player who's ever gone to Duke that I liked. The only one. I didn't like Duke when I was a teenager. I didn't like Duke when I was a little boy. You want to know the one player from Duke I liked was Grant Hill. I always liked him. He was a good dude. He was an unreal player. At full strength, Grant Hill was one of the five best players in the NBA. And I dare you to tell me who was better if you think he wasn't one of the top five. At that time period in the NBA, talking 1994 to about 1998, yes, obviously, you know who was number one. Yes, Shaq was likely number two. But then you really got to start lining it up and tell me who was better than Grant Hill once you get past those two guys. Don't worry. I'll wait. The thing about Grant Hill was is that his route to success was different from what a lot of people in Detroit, the very hard edge, especially mid to late 90s, the way that Detroit was back then and still is. You got to be tough. You got to be gritty. You got to be grimy. You got to be from the street. We saw the bad boys come up hard scrabble from nothing and scratch and claw and fight. Hell, one of the bad boys was one of Grant's running buddies for all those years. So we've seen them scratch and claw and fight. And and now here comes this pretty boy from Duke who plays the piano. Yeah, but some bitch also goes out there and gives you a triple double. He goes 21, 7 and 8 every night. What's the problem? And then when he left, you called, you told him, get away. You told him, go away. Don't come back. You basically labeled him as the poster child of that awful teal era. And one and one last thing there before I check out on this break. The teal era of the Detroit Pistons. To this day, I don't understand why the Pistons did that and why you would saddle anybody with those gross-looking uniforms that I have to blame the Charlotte Hornets and San Jose Sharks for that the cartoonish horse head logo. Thankfully, the Pistons have finally erased all remnants of the horse. It took more than 20 years to do it, but they erased all remnants of the horse. But I hate to say this, I think it's those dumbass Hill uniforms which also cloud our judgment a little on Grant Hill because dude was giving cats the business. He was giving you that work in those ugly ass teal and and orange uniforms that they were running around in when truth be told, He was the truth, even if those uniforms were a damn lie. Coming up after the break, everybody takes different routes to success. And with the start of baseball season, I have an interesting analogy and a bit of a JFC wow that I'm also going to drop on the website soon to help you find your way and take your stance as you go forward and chase your success. 
My name's Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 72nd episode, episode 72 of JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. But he's the guy they want to have, but they don't get it to him, they get it to Hill. Bill Powers in a kind of a goal. It goes! A bad shot yet. Like I said, only his eighth one of the year. Only his 20th try on the year. The crowd going crazy. And the people that are out in their cars leaving saying, why'd we leave? And the old man says, shut up, I'll drive. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. In 50 feet, turn left. Why are you driving so slowly? After a few drinks, I'm taking it slow. Well, you're not fooling the cop behind you. What? Get ready to pay in .1 miles. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This is JSC Radio. Hey now, this is the 72nd episode of The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. As we head into your Easter weekend, ladies and gentlemen, closing out the month of March, my name is J. Scott Smith. You can follow me on the Twitter machine at J. Scott Smith, where I am verified original. You can also follow me on Instagram under the same name, J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. I am also on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith. Don't forget to hit up Patreon, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. You can follow the show on Twitter at JSC Radio, trying to get more and more followers on there every single day. And of course, thank you to anyone and everyone who supports the website. That would be jscottsmith.com. Hot damn. This has been uh, an interesting run of the last few weeks for me, both good and bad. Those of you who follow me on the Twitter machine know I am back with an old friend known as the Griot. I want to thank them for having me pop in there. So when you see the name J. Scott Smith showing up on thegriot.com, be sure to click on it because we could use all the hits we can get out here. So thank you for that. And that kind of brings me to the uh, to the crux of this is we're going to kind of finish off the second half of this show, finish off episode 72 with another edition of one of J. Scott Smith's words of wisdom. And this one is baseball themed. Now, I've always said that sports is really an analogy for life. You can basically make anything everywhere analogous to sports in one way or the other. And baseball is probably one of the best sports to really be a great roadmap for your life. Now, I grew up playing baseball, as I've mentioned on here many times before. Love the sport of baseball, no matter how good or bad, and by God, the Tigers are going to be awful, bad that team is. I'm still going to love the game. I still love watching the game. I love how tactical it is. I love all the thought. I love everything that goes into it. I love the fact that you have two leagues with two different sets of rules, one with a DH, one without. It forces you to have to change up your game and become more of a tactician in baseball. I love that. But there's so many things about the game 
that I love, but you can also attach it to everyday life. And I've always been big on doing things my own way. And that rubs people the wrong way. Allow me to allow me to talk here for a second. I mean, it's my podcast. I'm going to do it anyway. But that's part of the thing. I've always done things a different way. I've always marched to the beat of my own drummer. And half the damn time, I didn't even know what the hell song I wanted to play with the drum. And it seems as if we all have that. We go through this run in our life. We grow. We just go through the shit that makes us kind of question whether we want to do what it is we want to do because what we're doing is so unorthodox and so different from the way everybody else does it. I've been in the media business, broadcast business, journalism business, whatever the hell business you want to call it. Well, I'm in business. Business is kicking your ass. And let me tell you, business is booming. But it's, for me, I've been doing this so long and so often the mistake I've made is that I've often tried to conform and fill a hole. I mean, in some cases, that wasn't all me because I got to a certain age where it's like, all right, I know who I am. I know what I want to do. But you keep shoving me into this different shaped hole. You know, the whole square peg round hole thing Well, you're trying. It's like you're trying to shove a star shaped peg into a round hole and it doesn't work. I've been in places where it just doesn't work. And this is not the baseball analogy I'm going to use, but occasionally I've walked into places where it's clear I'm a first baseman, play the position very well, and I can hit. I hit really well, too, so you can use me as a DH. Occasionally, you might be able to move me over to third. Once in a blue moon, you can put me in the outfield, and I won't cause too much trouble. But more often than not, I'm going to play first base. I can't play the middle infield. I'm not catching. So I tell people this. And then they drop me in a situation where I'm playing second base and I don't get to hit. And then they wonder why it is it doesn't work. The baseball analogy I'm going to use is slightly different because everyone has a different approach. Everybody has a different way to get to where they want to be. Not everybody is meant to do it the way you did it, Grandpa. Everybody is not meant to do it the way you did it 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, back when we were still looking at things on microfiche. Occasionally, you got new blood who come in and do things a different way and are still able to get the job done. You have to be allowed and you should allow yourself to find your stance. Now, I don't mean political stance. I'm talking about how if you notice in baseball, for those of you who watch baseball, and a lot of you act like you don't, but you do. If you notice in baseball, just take a look at what happens when you see a particular batter step up into the batter's box and step to the plate. You notice that each batter steps in that box and has their own routine, their own thing to get things done, and then when the pitcher is set, they square up and they have a batting stance. There's that guy on YouTube. Just Google or go onto YouTube and put in batting stance guy. There's this guy who does all different kinds of unorthodox player batting stances. Batting stances are how these guys get comfortable. It's something that they've always done. There's, a, there's actually a method to the madness. There are mechanics to it. And every player has their own individual stance. In a very much a team game, it's one of the most individual things you have is your own batting stance. Whether it's Ricky Henderson getting down low and putting the bat up on his shoulder and doing the almost exaggerated squat. 
whether it's Jeff Bagwell almost sitting down in an invisible chair and squaring his bat up, whether it's Ken Griffey Jr. stepping into the left-hander's batter's box. Because also, some of you guys are right-handers, some of you guys are left-handers. And if you're a right-handed hitter, why on earth would you try to bat left-handed just to please somebody? Step your ass in that right-hand batter's box. But Griffey steps in that left-hand batter's box. He gets those hands up, the bat's up right around his shoulder. You have Ichiro Suzuki, who has the unorthodox stance that's often seen in Japan, where it almost seems like he's running away from the ball as he's swinging at it. But he actually gets a lot of torque on his swing that way. It's like Miguel Cabrera, where now that he's kind of gotten his back issues together, he's able to square up. It seems like a normal stance, but he steps into it. One of the most unorthodox batting stances I've ever seen as a baseball fan no, it's not Victor Martinez, even though Victor's, his is a little different too. He kind of kind of almost sits down like he's reclining in a chair and the bat kind of leans back on his shoulder, but yet he also can square himself up and step into one. The most unorthodox batting stance I've ever seen was another former Tiger. Is a guy who spent a few years with Detroit, put up some pretty nice numbers in his time there, is almost like the second to Cecil Fielder, who had a pretty unorthodox batting stance, as did his son Prince. The guy I'm talking about is former catcher Mickey Tettleton. Now, here's the thing about Mickey Tettleton, and I would suggest you Google his name, Mickey, like Mickey Mouse, Tettleton, T-E-T-T-E-L-T-O-N. You Google Mickey Tettleton, and my old school head, my early 90s Tigers fans, y'all know exactly who the hell I'm talking about. This dude got up there, and he's a switch hitter. He stood straight up, like straight up, and he would position the bat like almost along where the letters for the word Detroit went across the chest. And he would just stick the bat almost straight out. And it just looked like he was standing there almost like a statue, like a caricature of a guy who was in a batting stance. And you would look at him as like, how the hell is he even able to get set to swing that way? And I'm sure there were numerous coaches who tried to get him to change his batting stance, who tried to say, no, do it this way. You're not going to get enough if you do it that way. Try this out. Try that out. Just do this. But the dude kept doing it, and he had a long career in Major League Baseball, and he had a lot of home runs in Detroit that way. Because by the time the pitcher is coming around, he steps into a more normal stance and would take his normal big swing. Cal Ripken Jr., baseball's Iron Man. Well, the other one other than Lou Gehrig. He actually changed up his stance almost from at-bat to at-bat. He had different ones all the time. But he always changed it to suit how he felt, his comfort level, the pitcher he was facing. Find your stance. Don't let someone tell you that you have to do it one particular way. It doesn't matter if you're a baseball player or a journalist or an engineer or a producer or a rapper or an architect. It doesn't make a difference what you are. Find your stance. Find your comfort level. That's what I'm getting at. I mean, hey, if you don't want to believe in batting, if you're a baseball fan who likes pitching, have you noticed that pitchers have all different kinds of deliveries, all different kinds of ways they get themselves set to pitch? There's different kinds of deliveries. There's the overhand. There's the sidearm. There's there's the three-quarter. There, hell, there used to be the submarine delivery in baseball. You don't see too many Dan Quisenberries running around anymore. Or Kent DeCulvey. Wow, I am showing my age with a couple of these references. But you know what I mean. These guys are able to do their own thing. Even if it comes down to the way you deliver the ball to the plate, where Anibal Sanchez, for example, would lean back, almost completely turning his back on the batter before wheeling around. 
or Hideo Nomo would get the ball all the way over the top of his head bring or bring his legs up high. And who can forget El Duque when the knee goes all the way up to the side of his head on the delivery. But it works. It worked for them. Someone probably told them their mechanics are off or that won't work. You think someone didn't tell Dennis Eckersley he couldn't pitch that way? It worked. And it can work for you. I'm not saying don't take, don't take anybody's advice. I'm not saying don't listen to others. But when you find something that works for you, a core, a base, something that works for you, you dig in and you stand by it. You stand by it and you work with it. And then if you want to tweak it, tweak it. But find a comfort zone. Find a level. Find your stance. My batting stance changed a lot. My stance in the last 10 years has changed a ton. And it's going to keep changing. And hopefully it will with you too. Because what your stance is today may not be the stance you use in five years. You may be like Cal Ripken. You might change your shit up every month. Or you could be like Ken Griffey Jr., who if you gave him a bat right now, he'd do the same thing he'd been doing since the 1980s. But do what works. Find your stance. Find your level. Find your delivery. Find whatever it takes to get you where you need to be and get you stable. And for the life of me, don't let what other people think of your stance or of your success or of your worth affect you. People are going to have their own issues with you. People are not going to like the way you do business. They aren't going to like the way you talk about what you do. Hell, I know I got people who don't like the fact that I talk about that I've won multiple awards or I've covered major events or I've been a part of big stories and I've worked in big markets and I've done a lot of really cool things and been on a lot of different networks and somehow managed to get myself over. Don't be mad at me because you've only been in one place. Don't get mad at me because you've only been in one place and haven't done some of the things that I or others have done. Find your stance and start swinging. And maybe you'll put up a few more hits too. My name is Jay Scott Smith. Dropping these dimes, these words of wisdom on you. Telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered, adopt and don't buy. And we are out of here. That's episode 72, y'all. Episode 73, it's time for another retro review. With WrestleMania 34 coming up, what better time than to close out the four-part series that took us from SummerSlam 1997 to the 1997 Survivor Series, to the 1998 Royal Rumble, we close out this run at WrestleMania 14. The Austin era begins right here on JSC Radio next week. Until then, goodbye, everybody. Herrera against Santos. First pitch. Swing a fly ball. Wow. Field, way back. Go. Got to be kidding me. Miguel Cabrera. And the Tigers come from seven runs down to beat the White Sox 9-8 with three in the bottom of the ninth. This is absolutely magic. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. I heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. 
I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.